welcome to the Forge Leadership Podcast. This week, Simon Barrington is joined by Kendall Kaufelt. Kendall is the Samaritan's Purse Country Director for Liberia and West Africa. Kendall led the organization through its response to the Ebola crisis in 2014 and has lived in Liberia for nearly 13 years. Welcome to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Today we're joined by Kendall Kaufel. Kendall is the country director uh, for Samaritan's Purse in Liberia. He and his wife Bev have been serving uh, Christ in Liberia uh, for over 12 years now. So uh, Kendall, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Simon. It's a, it's a joy to be with you and uh, just look forward to the conversation we're going to have. Yeah, fantastic. And and this sounds wonderful. I can't believe I'm doing this from the UK to Liberia. The, the internet and connection sounds absolutely incredible. Now, listen, how does uh, one become country director for Samaritan's Purse in, in Liberia? What's been your, your journey? Um, so my journey is, um, is one where it's interesting because uh, obviously God's hand has been in it. And I, I just look back and I can see that I... I grew up as a missionary kid. My parents were missionaries in Southern Africa, in Zimbabwe to be specific, for 38 years. And I left Africa in 1988 and uh, being Canadian, went back to Canada to go to schooling and met my wife and had no real uh, thoughts or desires to get back to Africa. Uh, But through just a number of different circumstances, particularly through my wife, who felt a strong calling to work in this type of field, uh, disaster relief, development, humanitarian type of work. Um, It was through her that uh, she continued to pray that the Lord would call both of us uh, to be able to work together. In the meantime, I I was a basketball coach. I mean, that's really where I was groomed, if you want to put it that way, is uh, coaching basketball at a university level, um, followed by some production management. But then uh, the Lord, uh, through my wife, uh, revealed that this is what he was wanting us to be involved in for the next period, was to work for an organization that really had a mission statement that lined up with my desire to see a lasting eternal impact um, and uh, came across Samaritan's Purse and applied for the country director's position. And to be honest with you, they took a risk in hiring me, having no experience, uh, very little education. Uh, but uh, by God's grace, we've been able to serve. I've been able to serve in this role for over 12 years. Um, and so that's that's my journey to this position yeah, and, and and are there any similarities between what you do now and, and coaching a basketball team at, at university level? Oh, very much. I, you know, it, it's amazing. Like God, He just knew what He was doing. And so, as for me, when I came into coaching, uh, really every year it came down to what was our goal for the year, what were the mm-hmm. players that I was able to recruit or were able to come mm-hmm. and be part of the team. And then figuring out what these individuals could do when they come together and work as a team towards a goal that we would set for the year. And so when I, when I look back on that, um, that was just such a great place to learn leadership um, and has really helped me in the leadership that I do here with Samaritan's Person Liberia. 
Uh, I mean, we, we have a vision, we have a goal for a period of time. And then as a leader, it's my job to keep them on vision, understand the team that I am coaching to get to that vision. And so uh, to answer your question, um, I'm so thankful for the 10 years or so that I was involved in coaching uh, because in essence, that's what I'm doing now in this role. Fantastic. Now, over the 12 years that you've been in, in Liberia, what have you grown to to love about the country? Describe it for people who maybe have never been there, uh, never experienced West Africa. Um, describe it for us. So Liberia is um, on the west coast of Africa. It's four degrees above the equator. It's a small country. Um, it only has four and a half million people but has a very uh, rich history um, and relationship to the United States through the slave trade and, and, and that period of history. It is a tropical rainforest, so we have two seasons. We have a dry season and a rainy season, and we get over uh, 250 inches of rain a year. Um, and so we experience a lot of bad roads, getting stuck in the mud and all those fun things, um, but uh, the people of Liberia is what I've really come to love. I mean, the diversity is incredible. Uh, you know, 4.5 million is really small. It's probably a little bit bigger now, but that was the last uh, census that we had. Uh, but yet in that, there are 16 people groups that are very unique and uh, have very unique traditions. and. And so the diversity is just, it's, it's incredible and I love it. And it's a complex situation. Uh, so you have a, a country that has experienced a lot of traumatic history. Um, most notable, you know, was the civil crisis and some of the atrocities that happened with uh, the war that took place. Um, and then more recently, the Ebola crisis. And uh, when you layer that on top of the diversity and the structural challenges and infrastructural challenges, um, it's a complex place to work. But, uh, but yet there's incredible potential. And I think that's uh, what the Lord just keeps bringing to my mind uh, in this complex, diverse, challenging, um, there's potential. And, and that potential is really what drives me to do what I do because these people that I've come to love are now my family and, and just I want to see them reach that potential, which at the foundation for me is found in Jesus Christ. Uh, and we're able to get to that through the various projects that we do. So um, it's become home to me. I love Liberia a lot. Wow. What was it like when you first arrived uh, nearly 13 years ago now? The Civil War had just uh, finished, hadn't it? I mean, what, what kind of conditions were you thrown into as Samaritan's person in those early days? So we came uh, about a year after the peace agreement was signed. And at that point of the peace agreement being signed in 2003, Liberia was a completely failed state. Uh, there was no uh, justice system in place. There was no banking system in place, there was no social infrastructure, I mean, there was no education system in place, it was literally a failed state. And so the Civil War 
took it to a place of ground zero. And uh, I came into that situation about a year afterwards. And so um, what I saw, if I can remember back, that's it's a long time ago now, but I just remember destruction. I, just a lot of buildings. The, the war ended with an urban uh, conflict fighting happening in Monrovia. So buildings were completely destroyed. The road system had not been taken care of for 20 years, and there was incredible potholes and just lack of uh, usable roads. Um, I remember that. Uh, but I, I, there's a, a memory in my mind of just the, the trauma that resulted in uh, conflicts being solved through violence. I, I just remember driving into town and and if there was ever an incident, there would be a quick, it would quickly flare up and it would be violent. And that was just how uh, Liberians survived during those you know, years of war. And that's, that's what uh, I remember. Um, so it, it was no electricity in 2005, no running water. Uh, so everything was generators and wells and all that sort of stuff. So it was an adventure. I remember coming around then and uh, spending some time with you and staying in, in one of the nicest hotels in Monrovia that had no running water and, and a generator <laughs> that kept uh, tripping out. So I, re I remember that well. But how did Samaritan's Purse go about its work back in those days and what kind of programs have you been involved in over the years and what kind of change has that brought about for the people of Liberia? So uh, initially um, when we came, when there was very little that was active in Samaritan's Purse. And so we immediately just was able to see where the needs were. And we saw a great need, particularly with the children that had been involved in uh, being used as, as child soldiers. And so we got quickly involved with uh, UNICEF and protection programs and rehabilitation of the child soldiers. And while that was going on, um, I knew that we needed to get involved with the church because it was my, uh, I, I knew quickly that the church was really going to be the network that was going to be able to sustain anything that we started long-term. And so we started to really look into the, the church. And so we, we started working initially and you were part of this initial work with HIV and AIDS. Um, and then quickly realized that there was a, um, the churches had gone through the same destruction. And so we did a lot of work initially with rebuilding churches. Um, and because the population had been so displaced uh, and so many had lost their lives, um, there was a need to get involved quickly into pastor church leader training. And, and so that's where we got involved and quickly realized that as people were returning back to their places that they had left, um, there was a need to help them with livelihoods and get them back on their feet. So we started working in agriculture and animal husbandry. Um, and then, you know, it just continued to grow from that point. So th that was the initial work that we did um, when we came in in 2005. And that just continued to grow. And God blessed us with resources and grants through various agencies. And, um, and through that, we never lost the focus of the church. It remained vital to what we were doing and uh, the need for the gospel uh, to really 
provide that healing and hope uh, for the population that had come out of you know years and years of, of civil crisis. And have you got a favorite story of maybe a, a village that's been impacted or a, a, an area of the country that's been really impacted by your consistent work over that over, over that period of time? Yeah, you know, the Lord uh, guides us, and I'm thankful for that. But when we, uh, when we came into Liberia in 2005, I was new to this type of work and uh, really found myself tripping over other organizations. And um, I went down to the UN that was able to provide me with a map of where people were, where organizations were working. And my desire was to get as far away as possible. And so the Lord led us to a particular uh, place in the Northwest called Foya, which is right where the three countries of Guinea and, and, and Sierra Leone and Liberia come together. And there was no other organization working up there. And I, I said to my staff of four or five at that point, this is where we need to go and work. And, um, and that has really proven to be something that the Lord led us into because the history of Samaritan's Purse's work in Liberia um, has really been, to his glory, uh, a success in that district. And then, of course, when we got into the Ebola crisis, uh, the Lord had us right there at the, the onset of it because of that. Um, and so just that whole district comes to my mind as, as a story of uh, complete destruction, um, but through the church, rehabilitating the churches, reconstructing them, working with the pastors, doing our program through the churches in that area. Um, you know, there's, there's many at times when I go visit and I go through a village and, and I see the church is a central point of that village. And out of that has come, um, you know, restoration for those villages. So uh, that's what comes to my mind when you ask the question of a story. It's not, it's really yeah. a broad story, but yeah. it's about God leading us to where he wants to use us, even though we don't know how he's going to use us, but yeah. in faith stepping out and doing that and he's faithful. Wow, Kendall, that's amazing. How how would you kind of describe your own personal approach to to leadership? That's a question I like to ask everyone who I interview on this podcast. Um, you know, how would you describe that? Are there certain things that you've learned about leading that have just become part of your core uh, DNA? And how do you lead spiritually as well? I mean, leadership is something that I absolutely love to study, and and, and I'm learning. My approach to leadership is changing all the time, and, and, and I think that's healthy. But when I think of that, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is that I understand that outside of God and His Holy Spirit, as a leader, I would be very ineffective. Um, and so I think my approach to leadership starts off at a position of humility and realization of the need for God and His Holy Spirit to, uh, to help me. And then it quickly moves into uh, this area of vision, and, and I've just I've just seen in our work here in Liberia the the incredible uh, unifying factor that a vision can provide to an office, which results in in, in, in just you know things getting done. And so I, I I believe strongly in creating and committing to a vision. Uh, then I would move to 
developing the team around you. You know, and again, I just see that through my coaching. And when I look at the work that we've been able to accomplish here, um, and it's because of the team. And so just investing in your staff, realizing that that's an incredible asset. And as a leader, once you've set that vision, I believe your job then is to, is to develop that team, to put the right people around you, and then give them the freedom to do what they need to do. Um, leadership, at that point, it's critical to trust them, to empower them, to free them up to do the work, and then be there to guide and make sure they stay on vision and to correct where needed. Um, but God has gifted so many people that are brought into our lives as leaders that we need to honor the Lord by giving those that have gifts the opportunity to use them. Um, and then lastly, it's, it's bringing it back to vision, communication, and then I just have this big word, prayer. Uh, there's just a, a lot of prayer that's needed um, in terms of my approach to leadership. Uh, in terms of spiritually leading, um, this is something I've been thinking about recently um, as I've taken on some mentoring. You know, mentoring is something that's talked about a lot, but it's something that I haven't done a lot of, but now I'm starting to do more of it. And I, I just see the necessity to to think through what does it mean to spiritually lead. And for me, Simon, the first thing that comes to my mind is that um, I will only lead spiritually um, as much as my spiritual walk or growth or journey is progressing. And, and so when I think of when I think of spiritual leadership, it's almost like the focus comes back on me and what am I doing to ensure my spiritual vitality? Um, I mean, there's lots of analogies, you know, that have been used in the past, but when I look and evaluate my leadership, when my leadership is depressed, it's oftentimes because of my spiritual walk is being is depressed out of maybe lack of discipline or devotion or uh, communion with God. And so, my take on it is that if I'm committed to being spiritually vital, the natural outpouring is going to be spiritual leadership. And that puts a lot of onus on me to ensure that that's happening. You know, other things that come to my mind in terms of spiritual leadership is, is that for me, it's is that our outcome, our goal, our vision is spiritual. So as an office, our vision is to see lives transformed through the gospel, churches strengthened through partnerships and communities improved through our projects. And so having a spiritual vision requires spiritual leadership. Um, and, and, and so I just kind of mulling those things in my mind, I, I have a long way to go in this area, but that's what comes to my mind. <laughs> that's fantastic. I, 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 a number of leaders, as I've asked them those questions, uh, have said about how the biggest challenge for leaders right now is leading themselves. But actually, it starts with us leading ourselves. It starts with our own uh, spiritual discipline. So I love what you were saying there about humility and about leading yourself and about about discipline. Now, a few years back, um, Liberia made the news um, because of the Ebola crisis and a huge crisis that was on the news in 
the UK and around the world uh, with many thousands of people dying and uh, a huge crisis that hit Liberia. And, and you were right in the middle of that and caught right in the middle of that. Talk me through how you became involved in that crisis and what Samaritan's Post's role was in, in responding to Ebola. Yeah, so going back to God leading us to the northwest of the country of Foya, uh, the uh, case number one of the whole outbreak took place less than 10 kilometers from where we were working in Foya. Wow. And so when you look back, I just see the Lord having us in the right place. And I received a phone call from our base manager, a Liberian gentleman, and he phoned me and I was having dinner and he just said, uh, Kendall, there are Ebola patients in FOIA. And, and I mean, that's, that's how it came to us. It was just, it was a shock at that point. My mind ran to, there is no Ebola in Liberia. It's in, you know, Rwanda and Uganda. And, and that's generally where it's always been. This can't be true. Uh, but obviously it, it did happen and, and was there. And so, uh, the initial wave happened right around our base. And so, um, you know, we were thrown right into it and that seemed to stop. And we thought that it was over and then it picked up again and, and it just uh, escalated to what, you know, we saw. And, and, and just like you said, thousands of people losing their lives to this incredibly horrific disease. When the second wave started, it was already, uh, well on its way, the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone and Guinea, and now it was flaring in Liberia. And at that point, the only organization in the world that really responded to Ebola was Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sans Frontier. And they approached us as an organization and said, we cannot respond in Liberia. We're stretched. Will you take on the clinical response in Liberia? Of course, at that point, Samaritan's Purse had never done that. And so having... Obviously, that decision was made at a much higher level at the headquarters, and Samaritan's Purse agreed that if Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sans Frontier, would train us in the protocols, then we would take on the response, uh, clinically responding to the outbreak. And that's what we did. And so uh, we ran the Ebola treatment unit in FOIA, and then Ebola spread into the urban center of Monrovia, and uh, we then partnered with SIM um, at their uh, hospital here in Monrovia. We partnered with them to set up the first Ebola treatment unit from Monrovia, which quickly got overrun. And so we built a, a second one, which quickly got overrun, and then there was a third one. And so uh, we were involved clinically responding. Um, at that point, all of our projects had stopped. Um, and so that's, that's how it came to us um, mm. in terms of us mm. being involved in Ebola. And two Samaritan's Post uh, doctors uh, contracted Ebola, and I know um, your staff were right in the centre of that uh, crisis. We we saw the pictures of of riots happening in Monrovia. We saw um, Samaritan's Purse uh, staff being um, uh, who had Ebola being evacuated out and back to the states and miraculously. Uh, recovering that that must have been an extremely testing and trying time for you and the team describe to us a little bit what that was like and 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 how you got through that as a leader um i, I can't imagine myself even being in that situation uh, talk to us about that 
when I look back on it, Simon, it was the most stretching, difficult, uh, fearful um, time in my life. I mean, mm. Ebola is such a horrific disease and, and, you know, my staff were coming to work and having to take a risk every day coming to work, not knowing who is in the taxi with them, were they Ebola positive, you know, getting here to our office where the units were and people were lined up outside and were dying on the streets because there was no room in the units and, and my staff were coming through that. And, and, and just being a leader in that time, it was more than challenging. In actual fact, to be totally honest with you, there was a point where I had to remove myself as a leader. Uh, and, and looking back on it, I, I learned a good lesson through that, that, you know, there's, there's times where you have got to lead and you've got to be stretched and you've got to go beyond what you think you can do. But then there are also times when you as a leader need to realize that you've been stretched far and now, you know, somebody else needs to come in and do it. Uh, just realizing the limitations you have, um, I think is a key thing that I learned through it. But uh, how did I get through it? Uh, I mean, obviously it was through prayer. There were many days where we would sit in our office and this had never happened in the world before. So nobody knew what to do. So it wasn't like you could turn to the textbooks or what have you, but it came down to at that point, knowing that literally hundreds of thousands of people were praying for us. And, and that was a powerful thought to know. Um, I remember having a team around me that I just sat with um, and, and in crisis, making those decisions, you have to rely on people that you've trusted in the past. And so just looking at the group around me, knowing that I've been with these leaders, I can trust them and coming up with a, you know, a, a collaborative uh, solution, you know, was not going to be possible by myself. Um, and you need that. And I think the last thing that I keep on going back to even though I didn't know this was happening, but there was a lot of preparation that was being done for my team and for me as a leader that made us effective initially in the crisis. And so the thought that just, you know, I, I, I think about is that leadership preparation in crisis has to happen outside of crisis. And if you get into crisis, um, and you haven't done the necessary preparation, um, you know, leadership is a lot more challenging at that point. Um, but Simon, it, it, I mean, there were days when uh, I wondered if, you know, you sit there and you thought maybe I have Ebola or you'd look at your staff and wonder who's, who's going to, you know, who's next and um, to just motivate the staff to keep working even in these, you know, extreme conditions, mm. um, really the Lord helped me mm. through that and mm. learned a lot through it. Mm. Now, many people would, um, finding themselves in that kind of mm. situation would, um, 
not blame you for um, coming out of it um, and wouldn't blame you for not going back either. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, you and your wife, Bev, have, have gone back to Liberia and uh, rebuilt um, the work mm-hmm. of Samaritan's Purse there over the um, last couple of years. What's the re-entry process been like for you into Liberia and, and the recovery process? What was that like as well after going through such a, a difficult crisis together? Yeah, you know, I'm thankful for uh, Samaritan's person and they saw the need uh, to uh, help us and, and they provided a lot of support. Um, and personally, I just remember that uh, when I left, I, I, I knew that I had to come back. I couldn't leave and not return just because of how much I had come to love my staff and the work that we're doing here. But I also realized that I needed to heal sufficiently to come back and leave. And so that's different for each person. So my wife, uh, she was ready to come back within six weeks and she came back within six weeks and continued to respond. Uh, For me, it took quite a bit longer. It took around eight months to where I could honestly, before the Lord say, I'm ready to go back and lead. I, you know, and during that eight months, there was a lot of healing that had to take place. Um, and so I think it's individual in terms of that response to uh, getting well enough to get back in and lead. Um, but when I came back, it, it was an incredible joy to be with my staff and to God's glory, not one of my uh, 350 staff contracted Ebola outside of Dr. Kent and Nancy Reipal, who worked for SIM. Uh, but my national staff that were out there, uh, not in protective equipment, but doing what was needed to try and get us through that, uh, the Lord just spared them. And so coming back in uh, was a great time of joy and celebration. Uh, Ebola prevented us from touching each other. And so when it was done, to be able to hug my staff, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was incredible. Yeah. And really that then set the stage for the next phase of our office. Uh, we didn't try to go back to what we were doing before. Um, we just, you know, looked and knew that there was a lot of work that needed to be done in terms of Ebola recovery, particularly in the area of trauma. Uh, and so that has become a focus of ours in terms of just working with uh, communities that lost, you know, half of their their community. And so, um, so again, coming in as a leader, the joy, but then just resetting the the the, the areas of focus. Mm. Uh, that still reach that vision is where we find ourselves today. Fantastic. And Kendall, is there anything that you've done, anything that you've put into practice to build your own inner resilience um, as a result of going through that Ebola crisis? Lots of leaders talk to me, you know, about the need to build inner strength for when the crises come. Is, is there anything that you now do that you weren't doing before that, you know, uh, people could pick up on and, and uh, from someone who's been through a crisis like that? You, you, is there, are there things you do differently now? Uh, what comes to my mind is discipline. Uh, I've just realized that there, the necessity of discipline as a leader Um, And so during peace or quiet times is when you have to be most disciplined in terms of building yourself spiritually in 
your communion and relationship with God and, and using that times to strengthen your leadership in terms of reading and engaging with others to, to pour into you and then pouring into others so that you can be poured into more. Um, it's that discipline to do those things when there's not crisis that I have learned. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if the Lord wishes, um, I feel more prepared for the next crisis than I definitely uh, would evaluate myself before going into Ebola. Yeah, well, Kendall, uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, that story with us. Um, you know, I've been so impressed by the work of Samaritan's Purse in Liberia over the years and, and your leadership of the team through uh, that crisis of Ebola and your willingness to go back and serve the people of Liberia. Uh, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. But just as we finish, what, what are you hopeful for now for the people of Liberia as you look forward? Yeah, I hope to me can only be found in Jesus Christ. And so my hope is that God would use me and, and our organization through whichever means he has to share the good news that is found in Jesus Christ that provides that hope. Um, and then my hope is for leadership. You know, as uh, we're currently going through an election process here in Liberia and um, the potential is often stunted because of poor leadership. And so I just pray for good leadership at all levels so Liberians can just experience the hope that, that can be found. So th those are the two things that come into my mind. Fantastic. Kendall, thank you so much for joining us today. And may God bless you in all the fantastic work you're doing there in Liberia. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for listening. Each week we bring you informative, encouraging and challenging interviews with leaders around the world on issues of character, integrity and identity. You can subscribe on iTunes by searching for Forge Leadership Podcast or by visiting forge-leadership.com.